Welcome to another episode of Behind the Evidence AODH, a podcast supported by the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center. I'm one of our co-hosts, Mark LaRochelle, an addiction-focused primary care physician at Boston Medical Center. And I'm Honora Englander, an addiction medicine physician and health services researcher at Oregon Health and Science University. On Behind the Evidence, we seek to engage with recent practice-relevant literature related to substance use. The podcast draws from articles reviewed in the AODH newsletter and aims to understand what's behind the evidence through conversations, including with authors. Excellent. Well, let's jump into today's episode. All right, we're excited to be here today with Dr. Christopher Jones. Dr. Jones is the director of the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And we're gonna be talking about his recent manuscript in JAMA Psychiatry titled Receipt of Telehealth Services, Receipt and Retention of Medications for Opioid Use Disorder and Medically Treated Overdose Among Medicare Beneficiaries Before and During the COVID-19 Pandemic. We're excited to have you, Dr. Jones. Can you please introduce yourself? Sure. And thanks so much for the opportunity to join today. I think this is uh, such an important topic as we're all engaging in a dialogue about how to make sense of various policies that were put in place during the COVID-19 pandemic and how we use research to help inform decision-making about permanent adoption of those policies. I'm Chris Jones, the director of the Injury Center and a longtime researcher on substance use, mental health, and overdose. Thanks so much, Chris. Dr. Jones, would you just start by sharing with us a little bit more about why you did this study and what were some of the key policy changes that you hope to evaluate? Yeah, well, I, I want to first say that this was a really collaborative effort between CDC, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, and colleagues at the National Institute on Drug Abuse uh, from NIH. And as part of our work together across uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, there has been great interest in really trying to understand with the expansion of flexibilities for telehealth, uh, remote induction of buprenorphine, um, with other flexibilities around opioid treatment program, take-home doses of methadone, what were the impacts? How did those policy changes put in place to facilitate care during covid how did they play out? Were they beneficial for patients? Were they beneficial for, for providers? Were there harms that resulted from those policies? And one of the things that was of particular interest to CMS in looking at the Medicare population was to really understand the flexibilities around telehealth. Um, some earlier research had shown that use of telehealth had increased generally in the Medicare population. But given the rise in overdose deaths during the first year of COVID-19, and just the critical needs of that population, there was an interest looking specifically at people with opioid use disorder and understanding how did the telehealth flexibilities play out for them. At the same time, there was also a policy change that was unrelated to COVID-19, which allowed Medicare to pay really for the first time for treatment services in opioid treatment programs. Historically, Medicare did not have a payment model uh, in order to for OTPs to submit reimbursement to Medicare to pay for those services. And that happened in January 1st of 2020. 
So prior to COVID, there was a change in law that allowed CMS to have this authority, and it was implemented right before COVID. And so we thought that's an important policy shift as well. And so if we're going to try to understand telehealth and in the COVID context, we also want to look at this other big policy shift. So this analysis was really intended to look at people who were newly starting care for opiate use disorder prior to COVID-19, and how did that group look for people who started an episode of care during COVID-19? And what did the influence of telehealth flexibilities, as well as the new OTP payment policy, what influence did that have? on access to medications for opioid use disorder, retention in treatment for opioid use disorder, for MOUD, and then also looking at um, non-fatal or medically treated overdose. Was there an association between people who had telehealth-related services for OUD care and medically uh, treated overdose? Great. Thanks for outlining the question and the policies being studied so well. Could you tell us briefly how you uh, approached answering the research questions you just laid out? Sure. So we wanted to, again, try to have an apples-to-apples comparison as best we could from a cohort of people pre-COVID versus during COVID-19. And so we spent a lot of time thinking, we don't want to just look at everybody who's got some claim for opioid use disorder because people could have been receiving treatment for very long periods of time. And so we decided to look at a cohort of people who had no prior evidence of treatment for opioid use disorder in the prior six months. And that was sort of a washout period. And we've, we had the same timeframes in place pre-COVID and during the COVID-19 pandemic. So basically a six-month period where there was no evidence, at least in Medicare, that people were receiving OUD-related care. So then we had a six-month window where we said, you can start in the cohort, uh, either pre-pandemic or during the pandemic. And that is when somebody had a claim for OUD-related care. And then we followed those people out for an additional six months after that six-month enrollment period in the cohort. And again, we applied the same time frame, so we we're accounting for potential seasonal variation, and we ended the pre-pandemic cohort that follow-up period right before COVID-19 started and the period for receiving your index episode of care for OUD for the pandemic cohort started in February of 2020. And then you followed them out from there through February of 2021. And so we, we thought that it was the best way to try to capture how services might change for people who are newly starting services. And I think, you know, we clearly see that there was almost zero OUD-related telehealth happening in the pre-pandemic cohort. And you see that there was substantially more. Overall, about 20% received OUD-related telehealth services, and a larger percent received behavioral health-related telehealth services, which is defined more broadly for you know, mental health or substance use-related care. But we really honed in on the OUD-related telehealth services. Thanks. That's really helpful to hear you define how you approached the cohort and and hence uh, the question and hence the cohort. We're interested for you to describe what you think are the main takeaways from your findings and um, if there was anything that surprised you. Uh, I mean, I think the, you know, the main takeaways for me were that as expected, given the flexibilities around telehealth, there was utilization of telehealth in this cohort during that first six months 
of COVID-19 and during the follow-up period that was almost non-existent in the pre-pandemic cohort. But, you know, one thing that we sort of raised as the concerning point is that only about one in five individuals received uh, telehealth-related services. We did see a slightly larger percent of people in the pandemic cohort who received medications for opioid use disorder uh, compared to the pre-pandemic cohort, uh, but there, only about one in eight received MOUD uh, services, about 12% or so. And interestingly, unrelated to the telehealth flexibilities, we saw that the payment policy change for OTPs, opioid treatment programs, appeared to be a driver of some of the increase in receipt of medications for opioid use disorder during the pandemic cohort. And I mean, you would hope to see that if you have a new payment policy that had not previously existed. So some of the increase that we see is, is not necessarily driven by expansion of buprenorphine or extended release naltrexone, it was this new uh, payment policy for methadone. But when we looked at some of the outcomes of interest, so retention on medications for opioid use disorder, if you received it, as well as medically treated overdose, we found that there was a positive association between receipt of OUD-related telehealth services and better retention if you receive medications, as well as reduced risk for medically treated overdose. And I think that was a primary area of interest because people want to understand how did care change and did that result in better retention or were people more likely to disengage from care? How did it have, did it have a protective effect for reducing risk for uh, medically treated overdose? And we found that it did. Um, and, and I think those were the some of the most important findings. But I will highlight that in the study, and I mean, I would refer re people who are listening to the tables because there's a lot there. We did look at a whole variety of demographic baseline clinical characteristics, chronic diseases, mental health, other substance use challenges. And we do see that there are some disparities there. Some communities of color were less likely to receive OUD-related telehealth services, that some uh, you know, age differences also exist in, in receiving services. And I think it, it, it underscores what we see generally around disparities in access to care. And that you know, our, my assessment of, of our research is that telehealth is an important tool, but we also need to figure out how everyone can benefit from it. Uh, and not be, in a way, essentially exacerbating disparities that already exist, but actually how do we help facilitate if older populations have challenges with technology, how do we help them use this to engage in care? Or how do we think about what are the barriers to adoption among communities of color? What, what within providers or health systems or individual at the individual level might be barriers for engaging uh, and how what can be facilitators for engaging in telehealth related services. That's great. I have a follow-up question. If you would just extrapolate a little bit, one of the findings around overdose mortality, uh, I thought was particularly compelling given the, the temporal trends that we've observed in the last several years. Can you talk a little bit about that in the, in the sort of pre and post cohorts and relationship with overdose? Yeah, so we've the the paper the first paper that we did looked at medically treated non-fatal overdose. And what we found is that um, the percentage of the cohorts, both pre-pandemic 
and uh, pandemic cohort, the percent that experienced a medically treated or non-fatal overdose was about 18%, no difference between those two groups. And that was, I think, a very encouraging finding given that we know that emergency department visits for overdose increased during the COVID-19 pandemic, that overdose deaths increased about 30% during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then when we looked specifically, again, at receipt of OUD-related telehealth services or receipt of methadone or buprenorphine, we found, again, reduced risk in the pandemic cohort for uh, medically treated or non-fatal overdose. We just had a subsequent study that was published in JAMA Psychiatry that uses the same cohort where we looked at fatal overdose. And what we found is among those who received telehealth services related to OUD care, as well as those who received MOUD from OTPs and buprenorphine in office-based settings, there was a reduced risk for fatal overdose. And that the OUD for telehealth association held even after accounting for receiving medications um, like buprenorphine or, or MOUD from OTPs. And that was something that when we did the first paper we didn't have linked mortality data, so we couldn't look at it, but it's something we knew that would be important to, to look at given the signal that we had seen for non-fatal overdose. We wanted to understand, does that carry also for fatal overdose? And we found that it did. I, I picked up one other point that I just found concerning that I hadn't really seen in other studies. And that was just, you know, the way you defined the cohort of people with a new diagnosis um, in a six-month window, just the absolute magnitude of the pre-pandemic and during the pandemic cohorts, right? So you found 105,000 in the pre-pandemic cohort. And then in a similar six-month window, it was only 70,000 in, in the pandemic cohort. So that's a 32% reduction in people who are being newly identified as having OUD. And, and rather than its relevance to these findings, I'm just curious about any thoughts on that. That seems overly uh, or, or very concerning to me that 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 many fewer people are are seeking care during the pandemic and and being identified as having OUD and having the opportunity to get these treatments. Yeah, I mean we spent a fair amount of time as a research team trying to think through, you know, what might be drivers for why there was a difference in cohort size because we defined things similarly, we had the same time frame. And there is an overall trend in the Medicare program that there was a substantial reduction in the number of beneficiaries seeking treatment during COVID-19 that really paralleled sort of the drop that we see in our specific cohort. So I think, you know, it does beg the question of this is a really high-risk group. And, you know, if they're not seeking services, that, you know, contributes to overdose risk because there are life-saving services that they're not getting. And I do think it's it sort of speaks to some of our work at CDC and work that we're trying to do with communities is how do we help link people to care across multiple settings? How do we help primary care providers and others identify folks who might need care? But recognizing that there are other places in communities that can be places to identify people who then could benefit from care, harm reduction, syringe services, programs, social services, you know, potentially transitional housing, you know, people experiencing homelessness in other areas that don't necessarily have regular access to care. And so I, I don't know that we fully understand exactly why there was that drop, but it is really important as we think about overdose prevention and broader strategies to recognize that there are people who are not able to connect into care, and we need to think of innovative ways to connect with those populations who are at risk. 
there's an increasing body of work analyzing the impact of loosening some of the restrictions around OUD care from the pandemic. And I'm wondering how you feel what what you found is situated in what others have found. And you know, what are the similarities? Are there any big differences? Where do we think the research is pointing us in terms of the, of the impact of, of these policy changes? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, it's a fascinating area of research, and there are a lot of different analyses that are coming out. Health systems, large practice groups, communities, states are doing analyses to try to understand the impacts of some of the flexibilities. So in addition to the two Medicare cohort studies that we've talked about, where we found, you know, positive impacts of OUD-related telehealth. We also have done some analyses to look at buprenorphine involved overdose deaths during the COVID-19 pandemic. That was another paper that came out uh, a couple of months ago. And we found that there was uh, no change um, during the time where these flexibilities were in place. The percentage of overdose deaths that invo involved buprenorphine, one, was very small even before covid uh, but it remains small uh, throughout the flexibilities. There wasn't any sort of shift in buprenorphine-involved overdose deaths. And then the second area we, where we published uh, research is looking at methadone-involved overdose deaths. And I think this is the one where it's uh, some disagreement around the mortality data. Uh, our analysis was that methadone, the number of methadone overdose deaths did go up in the beginning of the pandemic. In particular, in March, April, May of 2020, uh, we did an interrupted time series analysis, and we clearly show that there was this sort of shift up in, in methadone-involved overdose deaths. But that shift up was really consistent with the secular trend of all overdose deaths going up pretty dramatically in those few months. And what we found is that methadone-involved overdose deaths did not continue to go up. They sort of stabilized while other overdose deaths not involving methadone continued to go up. And the percent of methadone-involved overdose deaths as a percent of all overdose deaths actually went down over time as these flexibilities were in place. And our take was that when you sort of really dig into the data the deaths where methadone was involved that went up often were happening with synthetic opioids. It was happening early in the pandemic where there was really a lot of chaos in the care delivery system. And that our take was that we think it was distinct from the flexibilities around take-home methadone, which you know others have said, well, no, maybe the take-home methadone was a reason. And our take was, we don't think that that's the case. We think it was part of the larger secular trend and you know, there are other researchers have looked at the mortality data as we did, and they, I mean, they find the same thing. It's just a bit of interpretation difference. Uh, and you do see some sm small increases in methadone-involved overdose deaths even prior to COVID-19. So again, I think it's picking up the secular trend that synthetic opioids like fentanyl were starting to show up in deaths involving methadone, and there's this just general secular trend in the latter part of 2019 that continued through 2021, uh, where synthetic opioids uh, were driving increases in overdose. Dr. Jones, tell us, um, what do you think are, are some of the most important implications from, from this study? I mean, I, to me, our big takeaway and why we wanted to do this study was to really understand what are, what are the 
impacts of OUD-related telehealth. And I think what, what we showed is that there are positives, and that is consistent with other research that has come out, some qualitative, some quantitative, that say, you know, there have been benefits for patients. There have been benefits for patients who didn't want to engage in care because of stigma. Uh, there have been patient benefits for providers who like the flexibility. And so my overall take is that telehealth services for OUD are an important tool in the toolbox. I think what comes next is how do we integrate that in to in-person care, into other services, um, and how do we also continue to advance telehealth in an equitable way? Again, recognizing that not everybody was able to benefit, and how do we expand that um, so that we can reach rural populations, older populations, communities of color who look to be less likely, at least in the Medicare program, to receive some of these services. And I think there are still important research questions in understanding quality, looking at other outcomes and indicators. You know, what is the right balance of telehealth versus in-person? How do we support people as their needs change over time from when they're first engaging in treatment to they're in recovery in sustaining treatment? Or how do we re-engage people who disengage from care. Our study wasn't able to answer those questions, but I think those are those are important questions that still need to be answered. I'm hoping you can speak to a very timely question. You know, as you well know, the DEA has proposed rule changes that restrict telehealth prescribing uh, back from some of the permissions allowed in the pandemic. And particularly, I'm thinking about the proposed requirement for an in-person visit within 30 days I'm in Oregon, which is a large rural state where uh, in-person access to a buprenorphine prescriber may really introduce significant barriers for many people who, through the, the telehealth rules, uh, have been able to access buprenorphine. So again, really specifically as it relates to the findings in your study, can you talk about what some of the, some of the implications for the proposed change might be? Yeah, I, I mean, I you know, this is part of why we do what we do at CDC is to understand what do we know about policies or clinical practice change or programs to inform decision making. And, you know, part of our impetus for doing this study and doing the fatal overdose follow on study and doing the, the study to look at buprenorphine involved overdose deaths was that DEA and others have decisions to make. They need to make, you know, regulatory decisions because the COVID-19 emergency, which is the authority, which telehealth was being allowed, is going away. The public health emergency is winding down. And so we felt it was important to try to be empirical, to be data-driven in our work. And so I think this, the studies that we have done are, are cited and, you know, others have cited our work in their public comments to DEA that demonstrate, you know, there's value here. And we need to be very thoughtful that, you know, we want to make sure that we're protecting public safety and we're reducing diversion, but that we're also ensuring that patients will have continuity of care. And I think our, our research helps to support the case that telehealth is important. Uh, ultimately, you know, this is active rulemaking. DEA is reviewing comments. We're reviewing those comments as well within Health and Human Services. But our hope is that research like this has helped. And we we did work with DEA and asked them to include um, a solicitation of comment, specifically on the 30 days, to say, We've had a three-year natural experiment. Um, people have been doing this. There must be data that people have that can help us be empirical uh, in our decision-making around, you know, where will these regulations permanently land? And I, I, I hope that this research contributes to that conversation. 
I, I'm going to ask you one question. It's a little bit takes us a little bit further. We have, a, I, I think, some of the listeners of our podcast are other researchers and even some trainees. And and you're someone who sits at the nexus of public health as a researcher, at the nexus of public health, but also policy. And I'm curious, in in general, what do you think makes an impactful research question and study that will drive policy? Right. We all hope our research will do this. And you've been someone who's been um, able to be very successful. Uh, in, in doing this for a long time. And I, I wonder if you might have any thoughts on what policymakers are looking for as, as we share data with them. Yeah, I mean, I it's a it's a big question. And I will say that, you know, over my career, I am sure I have written papers that <laughs> were not all too helpful. Uh, you know, but as I have, I think, matured and certainly as I have limited bandwidth to do research, just given other responsibilities in my job at CDC, I really have to ask myself, what are the most important things? Like what's on the horizon that people, policymakers are really struggling with? And I, you know, I think these these series of papers were like a really tangible example of there's this thing that happened. It was a huge social disruption in COVID. There was rapid adoption of a technology that likely would have taken many, many years to really get to full-scale implementation, and these flexibilities are not going to last forever. So how can we do research? What data sets do we have access to that can provide some information on our understanding of what has happened under this natural experiment? And I think it is it is sort of thinking about what bills are being introduced in state legislatures, what bills are being introduced in Congress, you know, what are discussions and briefings happening on the Hill from a policymaker perspective that can be those sort of nuggets of like, people are struggling, they need answers to these things. And I think that is, that's, that would be my advice is to really pay attention to those really important policy questions and that are not easy to answer. And maybe you can't answer all of it, but maybe there's a piece of it that you can in honing in on that. I mean, over the course of my career, it's been really interesting to see when I first started in this space over a decade ago, you could actually keep up with the literature generally. Like I used to do this thing when I was at CDC in 2011, where I would look in PubMed and sort of pick out over every couple of weeks, like here are the papers that have come out on opioids and overdose. And I could actually keep up with it. It is impossible now. There is just so much that's coming out. And I think there's probably a lot of great stuff that's coming out, but it's being missed because it's just, there's so much noise. And I do think that really thinking about what are those things that are just buzzing right now that people are going to have to make decisions on. And that's where, as researchers, we need to be thinking, uh, focusing our efforts. I mean, xylazine is one where, you know, today ONDCP announced that it's an emerging threat. There's so many things we don't know on xylazine. We don't understand source. We don't understand how it's getting into the illicit drug supply. We don't understand treatment pieces of it, screening testing. There are so many pieces of just that one thing that need good research, qualitative research, quantitative research. But that is a place where like, we need good researchers to jump on those things. And now there are you know, decisions that are being made around policy and payment change. And so then who's doing the evaluation afterwards, right? So wherever DEA lands, there will be a whole plethora of research that can be done to understand what's the impact 
of that regulatory change or some forthcoming you know payment policy changes from CMS. So I think looking at those pieces from a policy perspective are very much in need. And I'll say that we can't do it all at CDC or within the federal government. We really rely on smart external researchers like yourselves to pose those questions, have innovative methods, think about different data sets to help us do our jobs better. So I think, you know, paying attention to conversations in, you know, state and federal uh, capitals um, about what's going on is a, is a great place to start. Thank you so much. It's really, um, really great to hear you reflect on that. And um, I think resonates so much. I'm going to do my best to summarize our conversation and try to hit the high points for our listeners. Dr. Jones, if I, if I get anything that needs correcting, please don't be shy. But I think to summarize some of the main points, I think, you know, this study was really asking a critical question about a natural experiment and policy changes that happen both in response to COVID regarding OTP, uh, take-home flexibilities and, and changes in buprenorphine, as well as a sort of planned change in Medicare policy around bundle payments at OTPs. And Essentially, um, Dr. Jones and colleagues looked at a cohort of people who were newly initiating a treatment for opioid use disorder in a pre-pandemic and a pandemic cohort, um, and they defined newly initiating uh, treatment as having no OUD care within six months of um, that index visit. And their findings are really important. They found significant adoption of telehealth um, and receipt of OUD telehealth services. Before the pandemic, there were one in 800 people who were receiving OUD-related telehealth services as compared to one in eight uh, during the pandemic. So again, a market uh, increase. And then I think really importantly, that there were differences in, in subpopulations such that communities of color and some age-related changes suggest that while this is a really important component of the care continuum, some people were more likely and others less likely to receive uh, OUD telehealth services. You also found that there was uh, improved retention related to OUD-related services and importantly, no difference in non-fatal overdose during a time when nationally there was a 30% increase in overdose deaths between 2019 and 2020. So lots of lessons learned, really nice discussion about how to ask policy relevant, practice changing, policy changing, research questions. And um, Dr. Jones, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no, really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate the great questions and the discussion. So thanks, uh, thanks for what you're doing to help highlight this information. Awesome. I'll add my thanks, Dr. Jones. And so I think that will bring our third episode of Behind the Evidence, um, a podcast from AOD Health, sponsored by the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center to a close. You can visit us at aodhealth.org. Until next time, we'll see you soon. Director of the Graken Center for Addiction and co-editor-in-chief of AOD Health, together with David Filene. Learn more about AOD Health and subscribe for free at www.aodhealth.org.
Behind the Evidence is supported by the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center. It is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities.